Welcome to What We Believe, the podcast of the RCI program at St. Paul's. The RCIA program offers an overview of the Catholic faith in order to initiate students into the full life of the church. The following episodes are recorded live at St. Paul's Catholic Student Center. If you have questions or would like to join RCA, you can find more information on our website at uwcatholic.org. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas' Prayer Before Study Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, lofty origin of all being, Graciously let a ray of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of my understanding and take me from the double darkness into which I have been born, an obscurity of both sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp sense of understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant me the talent of being exact in my explanations and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in completion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, welcome back to RCA Class 5. We are kind of trucking along. As I said last week, we're kind of entering into the meat and potatoes of the course of just who is Jesus, and realizing that so much of the Christian faith just centers around the question, who is Jesus? And then the question is, who is Jesus to you? Is a very important question. So today we'll do a review of what we covered briefly. I'm going to add a couple minor points that Father Sternberg did not cover last week, but review of who is Jesus, what is the Paschal mystery. And then tonight the hope is we're going to cover the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do in my life? What benefit do I get from the Holy Spirit? Why, what's this all about? And then the concept of grace and the very fun concept of how are we saved? What is the Catholic view of salvation? And then whatever time left we have, we're going to start into prayer. And we're going to cover a little bit of prayer this week and next week as well. Okay? So that's the plan. The review. Last week we started looking at this question of who is Jesus? And at the end of the day, we can say Jesus is One divine person. Remember how many divine persons there are? There are three divine persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is one divine person, the Son, who has assumed a human nature. So he is truly God and truly man. One divine person with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Okay? And that Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God, the who God is in the flesh. We can see something of the fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. And how we understand this true God and true man is an absolute mystery that basically the church tried to, basically spent the first 400 years trying to explain. One of the simplest ways I kind of like it explained is, if he wasn't man, he couldn't die. But if he wasn't God, he couldn't rise that he had the ability to die, was truly showing that he is, he has a human nature. But that, can God die? 
Well, only if he takes on a human nature. That he is truly of the nature of God, that existent life and love, eternal life and love, shows that he is God himself, that he could rise. Okay? And that Jesus, as I said, is the fullness of the revelation. In our chapel, it says so beautifully, though you probably can't read it because it's in Latin. A lot of people ask this question, what does it say in the chapel? Ego sum vita veritas, um, uh, via veritas and vita. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the path. He's the way to the fullness of God in the Trinity. He's the truth. He's the eternal logos, the eternal word. He is the word of God incarnate. And he is the life, source of all life. The only thing that actually has life in the full, okay? And so that is who Jesus is. And then Father Sternberg gave this beautiful explanation about the life of Christ and the Paschal Mystery. I understand a lot of that was pretty tough to understand, if you, especially if you don't have a good biblical background. That was a lot that he went to. He said it was very sermonistic, but it was a very nice explanation of the life of Christ. All right? So if you didn't pick up everything in there, that's okay. Here's a couple things that I do want you to take into consideration. And I just want to answer this question very clearly. Why did God become man? Why did God become man? I'd like you to have this, at least one or two of these, almost like memorized very quickly. And where I'm drawing on these from, in many of the handouts that you get, we'll see this reference, CCC, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there is numbers. And so I've briefly talked about the catechism, but not much, and I want to kind of explain what the catechism is and how we use it. If you have a catechism and you're referencing it, awesome. If you don't, as I said in the beginning, that it is hard to understand, it was written for bishops, and the organization can be a little tricky. So I'm giving you, quite often, almost every class, you'll get a handout with Catechism of the Catholic Church references. So I can kind of get you the key things that I think you should want to know. I usually will take out certain paragraphs and just try to walk through some of this with you or try to explain it. Guaranteed, though, if you are reading the Catechism, you're going to have questions because it was written largely for bishops, to bishops to use. And what are the contents of the catechism? Well, let's go back to what we covered before. What is, if I asked you the question, what is the deposit of faith? What is the deposit of faith? This one we should have, like, for sure, on right, very easy to explain because the deposit of faith is how we come to understand the authority of the word of God. And the deposit of faith is tradition, scripture, and magisterium. The sacred traditions of, that have been revealed by Jesus himself, given to us through the apostles, preached orally. Sacred scripture, you can think in a sense, although I kind of told you not exactly, the Bible. This is sacred writings, the word of God written. And then the magisterium of the church, the teaching authority that the Bible is confusing, and many people fight over how do we interpret it. And that especially when there are real questions, that the church is there to help you understand. It's this three-legged stool. Tradition, scripture, magisterium. Okay? So how is the catechism organized, and what sort of teachings does it give you? I'll cover the organization another day, but no surprise, what the catechism gives you is tradition, scripture, and magisterium. Tradition, it'll give you writings from the early church fathers. It'll give you excerpts from the liturgy. Scripture, 
tons. Just look at the footnotes if you open up a catechism. It's insane how many scripture references there are. And then magisterium. Teachings from church councils and other dogmatic statements that the church wants you to believe. So really church councils. A lot of times there's be like two letters. You're not sure what they mean. It's like LG 62. What does that mean? Well, for example, that would be drawing from a document of the Second Vatican Council called Lumen Gentium. Now, it's a little bit of a point off topic, but just tradition, scripture, and magisterium is what the catechism will give you. It's not the fullness, it's not everything, but it's described as a sure norm for the faith. That's a clear understanding. I can trust that thing, okay? And so, what does the catechism of the Catholic Church say? Why does God become man? It gives four clear answers in these four paragraphs. Why does God become man? To save us. Simply. To save us by reconciling us to God. Why does God become man? So that we might know God's love. That's reason number two. So that we might know God's love. Jesus reveals the love of God. Third, to be our model of holiness. The model of life and death. Jesus becomes man or sorry, God becomes man in the person, Jesus Christ, to show us how to live. He is our model. And then, fourth, to make us partakers of the divine nature. That's a direct reference to a passage in Scripture in 2 Peter, where basically God becomes man to make us like him. What does that mean? Perfect life, perfect love. Think about it, your relationships, no drama, good life, exciting, happiness, forever, no sin, that I'm so self-giving to the people I'm in relationship with, and they are so self-giving to me, perfect relationship of love, to become like God in the Trinity. That is why God became man, okay? So those are four beautiful things, and that's where actually we see, again, so much comes down to the Christian faith, this person of Jesus. Who is he? And it's kind of unique because it's unlike any other religion in the world. It's not. Anybody that says, oh yeah, all religions are the same, hasn't actually studied religion, or at least looked at the Christian faith, because they're not. And the message of Christianity is so utterly unique, because it's the only one where the one who gives the message is, or the messenger, we could say, is in fact the message himself. So Jesus is both messenger and message. It's all about him. It's all about him. This rises and falls on the person of Jesus, who he is. And I just want to read the paragraph on page 66 from the book you all are reading so studiously, as I know. You can go like this and say yes. So it says on page 66 in the chapter, Who do you say that I am? This is from Dr. Shree. What are we to do with a man who speaks and acts in the person of God? For many, this Jesus who presents himself as the divine Lord is a bit unsettling. If Jesus is God, then he has authority over my life. If he really is who he claimed to be, then I must follow him. And that might mean making changes in the way I live. That's why many people prefer to view him as just a good moral teacher someone who points us to God and even inspires us to be better people. We can contain that kind of Jesus. That Jesus remains far removed from our daily lives 
and doesn't entail our having to follow him. We can keep him at arm's reach, picking and choosing what we like about him while setting aside those aspects that challenge us to grow and change. The question Jesus asked his apostles 2,000 years ago can be asked of us today. Who do you say that I am? Will you accept him as he who claimed to be and welcome him as Lord of your life? That's a very personal question. But if you do welcome Jesus as the God who became man, then you are set to embark on the great journey of faith, an adventure of an intimate relationship with him. Indeed, the entire Catholic faith centers on this fundamental question about Jesus. Who Jesus is shapes the way we understand love, morality, and justice. It shapes the way we live our friendships, marriages, and family lives. As we'll see, Jesus stands at the very center of human history and brings God's plan of salvation to its climax. So, this person of Jesus is like something we can't ignore. We got to answer this question. You got to wrestle with this. I encourage you to really wrestle with this. Um, I think some of our parents and grandparents lived at a time when the culture kind of supported that. I, naturally, in the culture, yeah, there's good stuff that's happening, so I can just kind of put that church thing in the side, and that just kind of goes along with everything else I do. Not anymore. And so Jesus literally is the most important thing in your life, or he's meaningless. He can't be this sort of other option among other things. The very nature of his claims demands fullness, which is scary, totally scary. And yet, do, should you accept this Christian call to follow Jesus? Man, he just orders your whole life and puts it into place. You become a better son, a daughter, friend, future spouse. You become a better employee, or employee worker, friend. I mean, truly, he informs our whole life. And then I live in freedom as sons and daughters of God. So again, the person of Jesus is super, super paramount, central to the faith. Okay, Father Eric then went through the Paschal mystery. He t went through these last days of Jesus that we refer to as the Paschal mystery. The Paschal mystery, concretely, this is good to memorize too, refers to four things, four things. The suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. So what about suffering? What is that, what's that all about? Is God some masochist that took pleasure in punishing Jesus? No. The Catholic faith understands that the suffering of God in the person of Jesus reveals the extent of his love for you. So when I see that crucifix, I should primarily see the love of God poured out for you. And then I, especially when I am going through suffering in my own life, which happens all the time, I can relate that to the person of Jesus Christ who reveals his love for us in his suffering. Death. That not only did he just suffer for us, he went to the very end. There is nothing in your life that you will experience that he hasn't already gone before. Very important. He has literally gone to his death for you so that you don't have to fear death because by our nature, we do fear death. Why? Because we weren't made for death. 
Remember, go back to that creation, fall, redemption response. We were made for life. We brought death into the world. And then even God goes, says, I'll even go there for you. I'll even go there for you. So he truly died. Resurrection. What does that mean? Is that a nice metaphor that like, yes, he showed us this new way. No. The resurrection of Jesus is not a metaphor. It is a historical claim and a truth that we profess that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That he was dead. His soul and his body, we can say, separated, which is what we understand philosophically to be death, when the body and soul are separated. And then he rose back to new life. The interesting thing is that what did Jesus, what kind of life did he rise back to? Again, just this sort of ordinary, like, ho-hum, humdrum life? No. His resurrected body was a glorified body, never to die again. So it was truly him in his body and soul, but a glorified body that cannot experience the um, decay and suffering of this life as we experience now. And so this is truth for us that we profess in the creed that we will rise again body and soul. The Catholic Church promotes you taking care of your body and especially taking care of the bodies of those that have passed away because you're going to get it back someday. You will rise like him, body and soul. And then ascension. What does that mean? That Jesus, once he resurrected body and soul, he appeared to a number of his apostles, showed him his hands and his sides, that this is me, but that, again, just as resurrection wasn't just to get us back to normal life, he wants us where? In heaven. With him. And so Jesus, as we use the term, ascends back into heaven. So we're going to draw again tonight. I really like drawing. Terrible drawer. You know this. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where he was in the beginning. Now he actually ascends back into the Trinity. And so now we can say, in a sense, the Son has a body. He is in heaven, in the Trinity, body and soul, showing us that that's your destiny to be body and soul, to be a human person, to be a man in heaven, to be a woman in heaven. Radical Christian claim. Beautiful. The resurrection of the body. Okay. And basically to understand that all salvation and grace flows into the world from this Paschal mystery. When we get to the sacraments, when we get to even sacramentals, when we get to like, how does grace, like how do we actually get this life of God? How do we do this? Where does it come for? Is it because of all the good I do? No. The Paschal mystery is literally the most important event in all of human history, the central point of human history, and it's singularly the, the source from which all good flows into the world. Okay? More on that later. But then lastly, just want to say a key question, why the Paschal mystery? What is this whole thing about? And this is a nice summary way to try to understand it a little bit. Again, we're diving into a mystery, something that can't be fully understood. But we can think about it this way. Sin brought an infinite gap between man and God. Father Sternberg talked about that. When we sin in the fall, we make an offense against who? God, who is infinite. So an infinite offense, or sorry, uh, an offense against an infinite God demands an infinite punishment, you could say. So now all of a sudden, we, sin brings 
an infinite gap between man and God. And let's do draw this out. Remember, here is the Trinity from all time and space, right? Eternity, eternally a Father, loving a Son, eternally the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? This Trinity creates, reveals something of the Trinity to the world. To who? We've got Adam and Eve. There's Eve with her pretty hair. Adam, they're so happy. And so all of creation, let's put a tree because they're there with, in the garden. I draw a cat. This is going to be the worst cat in your life. I don't know why a cat, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, we like that. So there is our cat, the tree, all of creation, right? And then we sin. So there is this perfect relationship of love, and now there's a break. And because we are creatures, finite, dependent upon this, there's now an infinite gap between the two. And so we can't overcome that gap as finite creatures. How do I make up for this infinite gap as a finite creature? We can't. And so what does God do? God becomes man to satisfy sin and to reconcile us back to God. So only a fully human act would actually satisfy the justice of man's sin. Mankind sinned against God, so it requires that it's mankind, in a sense, to make up. And so only a fully human act satisfies the justice of man's sin. Only a fully divine act has the infinite love or power to reconcile us to God. Fully God, fully man, right? At least in a mysterious way does this kind of make sense. And so what does God do? He sends his only begotten son. Let's put Jesus down here. Jesus also with his long hair, doing great. To reconcile us back to God. And so he comes and undergoes the cross, the paschal mystery, as the path back to here, and then actually ascends back into the Trinity. So this is Jesus. This is my bad art, right? Jesus, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that the world might be saved through him. This fully human act and yet fully divine act. Okay? That's the power of the Paschal mystery. That's why it's so important. Awesome. Now, that's review, which is almost half the class, but so important. We're going to catch up, don't you worry. All right, next let's move on now to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interesting and mysterious. So I want to start with a reading from Scripture. We're going to read is what's called the event of Pentecost. So this is from Acts of the Apostles. It's a book in the Bible about the early church, how the early church received the message of Jesus and spread it throughout the world. And so... Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking them, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yes, and on my men servants and my maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Jumping down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is where Jesus, or sorry, Peter proclaims the gospel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jumping down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were all cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. That is a reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Okay. So what to emphasize in this? This day, Pentecost just really means 50. There's a whole Jewish feast behind it, but 50 days after Jesus ascends, sorry, actually 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus, sorry, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, send the Holy Spirit. Sorry, God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
40 days after the Paschal mystery, or sorry, sorry, I'm all over the place here. 40 days after the resurrection, we have the ascension. And then it is nine days later, nine days after that, we get to Pentecost. This moment of a second sending, you can even say. You can picture this. Where God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But also, God so loved you all that he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell upon you. And so the Holy Spirit appears first in this moment to the apostles. It appears, or sorry, he appears as tongues of fire. And all of a sudden these scared, cowardly men who hid at the slightest moment of suffering are now emboldened to preach the gospel. And then they preach it boldly. And in that preaching, people are like, whoa, there's power here. And they say, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, and you too will receive the Holy Spirit. It's often referred to the day of Pentecost as the birthday of the church, which I think is a beautiful understanding because it's the day that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all men and that it is given and that we see actually in this point, in the day of Pentecost, the fullness of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, so who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. So there are three divine persons. The Father, remember, when you hear Father, not big bearded guy in the sky. When you hear Son, not Jesus, not yet. And when you hear Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. It is not fire. It is not, these are all symbols that point to some reality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. So if the Holy Spirit is a person, what does that mean? We can have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so we have now at this moment of Pentecost, this beautiful thing where now the fullness of who God is in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is poured out, is revealed to the world. And so in one sense, one of the great names for the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells. We're going to cover the church, but what you can actually see is that the Holy Spirit being poured out to all the apostles is, in a sense, this second sending. And now, guess what? This is our way back to the Trinity. By the power of the Holy Spirit through the church, this is how we end up at our final goal. So the Holy Spirit is powerful. He is God. And he does much for our life. And so, um, I hope that kind of makes it a little bit less abstract. I think people are kind of, it is hard, admittedly, because what am I supposed to think about when I hear the Holy Spirit? We can think of a lot of things. Think of the life of the church. Think of the ability to even believe. It says in the scriptures that, no one can say Jesus is God except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, our response to the Holy Spirit is to worship the Holy Spirit, adore the Holy Spirit, glorify the Holy Spirit, understanding him as the third person of God. And so then what difference does the Holy Spirit do in my life? I kind of pointed out maybe five different things. And some of these are summarized on your handouts. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith and communicates the life of God to us. So if I don't have the Holy Spirit... I can't believe in the Christian faith. I can't come to faith in Jesus. 
Just remember I said last week to pray for the gift of faith. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to understand who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit empowers us, this is the second thing, to live a holy life. We cannot obey the commands of God by our own power. We're going to fail. In the Old Testament, there was this law that pointed out all these things we're supposed to do. And actually, that day of Pentecost in the Jewish faith was the celebration of the giving of the law, where now the Jews said, yes, now we know what to do. The problem is, they didn't have the power to do it. And so the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is beautifully timed with the Old Testament to understand that what is the new law? The new law is the person of the Holy Spirit, not written on stone, but written in your heart. And now you have the power to follow God's commands. You have the power to live as Jesus did. Is there a sin you're struggling in your life that you're thinking, there's no way I could ever overcome this? Well, by your own power, you're right. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. You will. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a holy life. The Holy Spirit builds, animates, and sanctifies. It makes holy, thus Holy Spirit, right? It sanctifies the proclamation of the gospel. That when I do preach the gospel, when I talk about creation, fall, redemption, response, when you hear that, your mind's kind of like, dang, there's something going on. That's the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you. The power of the Holy Spirit is present in the sacraments. So think about at church, we say, the priest pulls out his hands and says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctify these gifts. There's actually a calling down of the Holy Spirit at Mass and in through all the sacraments, and we'll cover that later. And then obviously the moral life. The Holy Spirit brings with it certain gifts. And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit are received fully in confirmation. They're listed on your sheet. We'll cover that more when we cover confirmation. And then there's also the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You ever want to know, like, if I really follow through with this Christian thing, with this Catholic Christian thing, what is my life going to look like? How does this sound? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and chastity. Anybody not want goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? That's the, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So to have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, these things come into my life. Do you ever notice like anger, malice, envy, jealousy? you can be certain that is not the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay? So we need a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Lastly is the Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray. We do not know how to pray as we ought. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So this process of prayer, which by it's looking like time we probably won't get to tonight much of, no big surprise, um, is helpful through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, let's go to this. This is a super important question. Grace, what is that all about? And how are we saved? Because especially I'm going to kind of genuinely speak a little bit more to our baptized non-Catholics. Because there's this great question of, okay, if, if God comes to save us, okay, I get that. And he does this through the Paschal Mystery, sure, I get that. But like, concretely, what does save me? How does this salvation come to me? Does it come through faith alone? 
Does it come through the works that I do in my life? And there's, you want to look up kind of interesting, fun little banter back and forth? That's a great place to see, okay? But I want to walk you through a sheet. So I'm going to have you take this sheet. Um, so it's one of the handouts. So if everyone can grab it, it's the sheet that says on the front, I believe in the Holy Spirit on the back. Actually, shoot, it got a little bit changed because on the bottom it actually says the work of the Holy Spirit and the process of salvation. That's the title for the back side. Because I want to cover what the Catholic Church teaches about how we are saved. So this conversation of is it faith, is it works, more often than not, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit here just for time's sake and for kind of teaching points, More often than not, some of these conversations and arguments about faith, works, are silly and unhelpful and miss both sides. (laughs) So many times in in Christian conversation and apologetics and banter, we don't actually help each other out because we're not speaking on the same level. That's why I want to say just, I put this here, the shortest, simplest answer of how we are saved is by grace. It's the grace of God. The only way that any of us are going to end up in heaven, what we refer to as salvation, is by the grace of God. Now, how do we get the grace of God? Okay, well, now we've got some questions. Through faith, working through love. So, but let's look at what what do I mean when I say the word grace? Because we throw this out quite a bit. So, grace, this is from the Catechism, is favor. The free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children, adopted sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes of us, makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctifying it. It is the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. It is in us the source of the work of sanctification. Don't you love it when someone explains something and then they introduce four more terms in the definition that you also don't know, right? So that's why we're going to go through what does it mean for sanctification. (laughs) Um, But basically, to understand grace is the free and unmerited gift of God's life and love. When I receive grace, it's God's life and love. That reception of that divine nature, perfect exchange of life and love. And do we earn grace? Do I work for it? No. The Catholic Church does not teach you work for grace. The Catholic Church teaches that grace, by definition, is gratuitous and free. Freely won and offered by Jesus through the Paschal Mystery. The source of grace is Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay. But, and it's, and it's grace, that what we call sanctifying grace, that we receive in baptism that starts the work of, work of sanctification or this word that we often use of salvation. And this is very clear or very key to understand and where we do have differences, especially if you're coming from a non-Catholic uh, Christian tradition. Because as we understand it, and as classical historical Christianity has professed this, it's professed at how? the constant witness of the tradition of the early church, the apostles passing it down to the early church fathers, the bishops of the church in the early years, confirmed and reaffirmed by the writings of sacred scripture, and then 
also confirmed, reaffirmed, clarified by the magisterium of the church. That just kind of the big picture way to understand this is that salvation, far more from understanding it as a one-time event, for the course of your life, is a process. It's a process. Now that is different, and that's where we kind of come into, someone might ask you on campus, when were you saved? Has anyone been asked that? Or have you been saved? Anybody ask that? Yeah, that's very common if you meet um, an evangelical Christian. They would say, well, you're not even sure if you've been saved? And most of us, if you're coming from a Catholic tradition, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I don't know how to respond to you. But actually, in the evangelical Christian side, it's very important, super important question. There's a different disagreement. And so, interestingly enough, as we look at the scriptural evidence, the word salvation is referred to in past tense, present tense, and future tense. Okay? And so there is some confusion, especially as you read the scripture. This is the way I teach it. And again, it's slightly perhaps an oversimplification, but I think it helps you understand what we're talking about on this process of salvation. And I give it as a process of three steps. Justification. Thanks, Father, for introducing another word I don't know. Justification, sanctification, and inheritance. Three-step process. Justification, sanctification, inheritance. So you've got catechism references there, but I'll just read this. Justification. The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us. Thankfully, it gives us a definition there. That is to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. So the very first, that's right from the catechism, that justification is the, what cleanses us from our sins, makes us justified, makes us righteous. It's actually the same Greek word. Um, and actually, beautifully, the word justification is actually a new Christian word. Didn't exist and it comes from Latin. Use is just or law, where we get law. And the tification is the Latin facere, to make just. Justification is the, the process by which you are made righteous or made just. And so you can see this in bold. This is my writing now to explain this a little bit. Justification begins the process of salvation by cleansing us of our sins and infusing the soul with sanctifying grace. It moves us from being sons of Adam to becoming adopted sons of God. It is entirely the gift of God and cannot be merited or earned. Okay, so if someone asks you, if you're a Catholic, have you been saved? You could say, yes, I have. By faith and baptism, I have been justified. Because at the moment of your baptism, you are totally washed clean of the stain of original sin. You are made right with God. That relationship is restored. And you are no longer a son of Adam that's fallen humanity. I am now an adopted, real, true son or daughter of God. That moment I have been saved. Justified. But that's just the beginning of the process. Because perhaps even, I'm going to pick on Pano. Pano was baptized this past spring. Pano, when you were baptized, now are, is your life all in order now? Like no problems, no issues? Like... You don't struggle with anything else anymore. You've never sinned since your baptism. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, Pano just sinned by 
pride and lying. So you, you had a good streak going. Now pride and lying. Okay. So that starts the process. And this is another way I describe it, is that the difference between Catholic Christian understanding of salvation versus Protestant Christian is the Protestant Christian is it's a covering over. We're just kind of, God is seeing you and he's looking at you and, and he sees his son because his son went to his death for you. So you're okay. We're okay. Catholic Christian understanding of salvation is it's internal. It's a whole changing of your entire nature. And God goes deep. God doesn't settle for surface level healing. The word salvation actually means to be made whole. To be made whole. So it's kind of painful. And, but he's a good surgeon. He knows exactly what he's doing. Okay, so the first part, justification. Next part, sanctification. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man that is straight from the Council of Trent. And so this is, and that's straight from the Catechism, citing the Council of Trent. This is my understanding, my words that I've put into this. Sanctification is the long process of actually becoming holy. Keep working, Pano, you got this. It is a daily renewal and an interior transformation by which individuals grow in love of God and neighbor to actually become more like God. A personal self-gift and a communion of love. God's grace is still primary. That's very important. And the work of sanctification, prayer, works of charity, sacrifice, following the commandments, etc. is only done in cooperation with the grace of God. While we can't make ourselves holy in the strict sense, There is an active cooperation or response to the free gift available to us. So because I have been justified, I now start this process of interior transformation where I become more justified. That's why sometimes the word, again, justification and righteousness are literally the exact same word in Greek. It's sometimes nice to say, I've been justified Now I need to become righteous. Or you can put it this way. I have been saved from my sins at that moment of baptism. Yep. But now I got to be saved for holiness. I got to walk the walk. And this is the long exacting work of sanctification. It's a process where my works, especially my good works, actually do participate in making you holy. Or your prayers, for example, are now efficacious. They work. Because what happens is at that moment of baptism, you have been baptized into the death of Christ. You take off the fallen human nature, and now you take on the nature of Jesus Christ, and your life is a gift to others. So what happens when you become Christian? Everything goes wonderful. All my problems disappear. No, your life starts looking like Jesus' life, which is a beautiful life, the model of holiness, but it also takes on suffering. But now, my suffering has meaning. Not just meaning in this life, eternal meaning. So when I offer something up in suffering or sacrifice, 
it actually takes effect in other people's lives. I become a participant of the saving work of God throughout all of time in history. Holy crap, that's amazing. Your life after baptism has so much meaning and purpose. Your suffering after baptism has so much meaning and purpose. You have no idea. You become a participant in the saving work of Christ. And it makes you holier too, okay? And then the third and final step, because, all right, Pano, we'll go back to him. He's been justified. He's being sanctified. But, dude, are you in heaven? I know it's close, right? Seems like it. St. Paul seems like it. Pana is not in heaven, which means there's still something that awaits him. Pano still could choose to reject Jesus. Pano still could become an axe murderer. I don't know, sorry. Um, he's not in heaven yet. This is the final process of salvation. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. The last stage of salvation is inheritance of the heavenly life of God. If we are truly adopted sons and daughters of God, then we have a family inheritance that awaits us. Remember this family of God, the Trinity. It's a family. It's the family of God. One cannot earn a family inheritance. You get it simply by being part of the family. However, one still has the freedom to reject the inheritance and choose to separate yourself from God, which is what we call hell. And so in the Catholic Christian tradition, because it's not the constant tradition of the church, it's not affirmed in scripture, and it's not confirmed by the magisterium, that once I am, quote, saved, I am always saved. That's very common in Protestant Christian ideas, that you still have your freedom to reject the family inheritance. But to think of heaven as your family inheritance, you get it just by being part of the family. You don't earn it. It's freely given. Does that make sense? Okay. So I can go into a lot more, but that's enough for you guys to think about this. Obviously, I'll review it next week, at least the stages. Justification, sanctification, inheritance, how we're saved. You can see on the bottom that this is truly the biblical understanding. And one of the clearest areas we see this is in the book of Exodus. Father Eric last week mentioned the Prince of Egypt a bunch of times, right? It's a great film. Or maybe you grew up watching the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. It tells this story. It's probably the most well-known story, the Exodus story. And so what happens is Moses is this one who comes and helps free the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. And how beautiful this idea of Paschal mystery is drawn from the Passover mystery in the book of Exodus. That's the first foreshadowing. They had to eat a lamb that was slain. And then they were set free. But think about it. The Israelites, they're set free from the slavery in Egypt by the Passover lamb. But then they're marching 
And then what happens is the Egyptians were like, that was dumb. Why did we let these guys go? So are they fully free yet from the slavery to sin? Or sorry, from slavery. No. Then what happens, they get to this point where they, all of a sudden they're going and then they realize like, oh shoot, those Egyptians are chasing us. And now there's this giant body of water in front of us. What are we going to do? And they start complaining to Moses. Like, Moses, really? Really, bro? You brought us out here to die? We could have died in Egypt where at least we were well fed or better fed. Now no one's even going to know we're here. And so what does he, Moses do? Parts the Red Sea. They march on through. Egyptians were like, sweet, there was a sea here. There's not a sea. Why don't we follow in too? And of course the Israelites get through. Moses brings the water back. And then what are they finally free from? That is the moment crossing the Red Sea when they are free from slavery. No more slavery for the Israelites, right? Totally destroyed by how? Water. So you can see slavery in Egypt is allegorical to this sinful human nature and our slavery to sin. The crossing of the Red Sea is an understanding of faith and baptism, saved by water. So the water of baptism is prefigured by the water of the Red Sea. But again, is that the end of the story? Are the Israelites then, because where are they going? They're going to the promised land. That's what they were promised. But what's between them and the promised land? A whole lot of desert. So they were, we can say, justified. They were given this freedom from sin, but now they still need to get sanctified. And so what happens? They're in the wilderness for 40 years, struggling. Daily grind. So, Pana, where you're at in your life is in the middle of the desert. You've been set free from sin, but now you're on the journey to the heavenly homeland. So the journey through this life is what we call sanctification. We'll cover more, but how beautifully that they were given bread from heaven, just as in the church we're given the Eucharist, bread for heaven, bread for the journey. Until finally, they, finally, after 40 years, they get into the promised land. Out of all the Israelites, I should have checked the numbers, I usually do, several tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Israelites leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea. How many actually get into the promised land? Hundreds of thousands leave. Three. That's crazy. We'll talk about that more next week. I'll come back to that point. But most of them actually lose their inheritance and they don't get into the promised land. They don't get to heaven in the allegorical sense. Not saying that they're not saved, but just to understand that you can lose your salvation even after you've been baptized. That is a truth that we proclaim and has been proclaimed dogmatically. And so, but once I've been set free, that's, that's the trajectory. My inheritance is set. I need to cooperate with God's grace and then I will get to heaven, the promised land. Justification, sanctification, inheritance. Okay? Sweet. Last thing I'll say for one minute to two minutes on prayer is I gave you a handout of various select quotes on prayer from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm going to ask you to read all of this. I know it's a lot, but please read this. And then the chapter, someone came to me and said, the chapter on prayer and love unveiled, chapter 16, was awesome and really helped them understand prayer. 
So read this as well, because this is the catechism. And talk to your mentor about prayer. How do they pray? And this is where we will now, probably from here on out, every class at least talk about prayer in some way. Because it is a relationship, and it's very hard. So I wanted to cover a few key points from uh, the catechism, but for time's sake, I will not. So at this point, why don't we close in prayer ourselves, and I'll be happy to stay after for questions for as long as anyone wants tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to What We Believe. If you have any questions or would like more information about becoming Catholic, do not hesitate to reach out, and you can find our contact information on uwcatholic.org.